Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bible, turn to Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58 is where we're going to be at this morning as we, we're, we're really nearing the end of our Isaiah series. And so uh, Isaiah 58, towards the end of that, and I'm excited uh, to start Luke here in just a couple of weeks. As you're turning there, let me ask you this question. What is your favorite musical? Your favorite musical? Uh, I, I guess a better way to start would be like, how many of you don't like musicals? Raise your hand if you don't like musicals. There's a few out here. There's a, there's a few. I watch, we don't watch movies a lot of times in the cinema, uh, not because I have a conviction against it or anything like that. I'm just cheap, and I'd rather wait until it comes out on Redbox, and um, then I can grab it there or Google Play or something like that and get it on my television at home. It's cheaper. I like it that way. Uh, not too long ago, there was a musical that came out called The Greatest showman. And I waited all the way until it was on Redbox. It made a big deal. There was a lot of people talking about it. And uh, I waited until it came out on Redbox. We rented it. We were at our house and we put it in and it starts the way it starts with this guy looking to the side saying a bunch of things that I can't understand um, what he's saying as he's singing there. And we get a few seconds into this show and I, I look over at Jackie. I go, wait a second. Is this a musical? And she's like, yeah, what rock have you lived under? You know, this is, this is a hugely popular musical, right? And, and so I was surprised that it was a musical. I didn't know that it was a musical. Uh, furthermore, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. I really, really like that show. In fact, it's not uncommon for me to be driving around listening to The Greatest Showman, singing every word um, to every single one of those songs, all the parts, all of it, because I really enjoy that. If, if I don't know how you answered earlier, but your favorite musical could maybe be something like Grease or The Sound of Music, Fiddler on the Roof, or Mary Poppins. Some of you may like more modern musicals like Moulin Rouge or Hairspray. And to be real honest with you, I would rather not watch any of those. If I have a choice, if it's on television, I'm changing the channel. But The Greatest Showman, I really like. Isn't it interesting, or I don't know how often this happens to you, it hasn't happened a lot in my life, where you are doubly surprised, where your expectations are, are shattered and then Exceeded. Like, when I turned on The Greatest Showman, I did not expect a musical. If I had known it would be a musical, I did not expect it to be good. And so then I am surprised by that. Expectations have a lot to do with the way that we uh, function, the way that we enjoy things, the way that we live out our lives and the results of them. Expectations are important. They matter. Well, they matter when you're trying to find a place to eat. They matter when you start a book just because you don't know what the book's about, but the cover looks really good. So you're going to start that. They matter when your unranked team is playing or beats a ranked team. They matter. Our expectations matter when we're going into something. They also matter when we either exceed them or we don't meet them. If you don't meet the expectations of your professor, you're going to fail your class. In marriage, if the expectations are not met, then there's going to be trouble in the relationship. When we put unreasonable expectations on other people, they're going to be disappointed, or you're going to be disappointed in them, and they're going to feel lost. That's what expectations do. I started to think about this this weekend, and particularly this week, when I was thinking about the idea of expectations. We are, I think, taught to deal with expectations in one of two ways. Generally, I think the common wisdom for expectations is that when it comes to other people's expectations on you, then you just ignore them, discount them. It doesn't, it's unreasonable for other people to have expectations on you, right? We just kind of say, don't worry about what they think, right? That's, that's kind of what we teach our children. That's what maybe your mama told you to do. When it comes to our expectations on other people, our services, our goods, then we are taught to lower our expectations, the lower your expectations, then you're unlikely to be disappointed in people and, and services and goods. That's generally the way that we think of expectations. In light of that, we think of expectations predominantly negatively. Like other people shouldn't have expectations on my life. And when I'm disappointed, it's because I've had too high of expectations. But I wonder, 
I'm thinking as I look at this text here today, if there's not some benefit to expectations, to exceeding expectations. When you think of a professor, if you are to meet their, uh, their expectations, then you learn. If you think of a coach or a pastor, if you are to meet their expectations, then you are to develop, you are to mature, you are to get better. Met expectations are good. And so in our Christianity, in our walk with God, in our pursuit after being God-like, do our expectations rightly set for others and for ourselves and even for God weigh in on how we do, how we mature, and how we live? That's what we're going to talk about today from Isaiah 58. But before we do, let's pray together. You pray for me, and I'll pray for you. God, thank you for this word. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the worship and the gathering of your people. God, we do thank you for the rain. We are grateful for rain, not only because of the benefits of it, the cooling weather, the crops, the livestock. God, we are also thankful because the rain reminds us that you are gracious towards the just and the unjust, that your invitation to know you is universally um, made, that you are kind and you are good. And so God, today we thank you for the rain, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for our church. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Isaiah 58. We're going to look through mainly about 10 verses. I'm going to skip one of them, but let's look at them in smaller chunks. Verse 1 says, cry out loudly. I don't know why, but I feel like I should say that loud um, as I'm reading it. Cry out loudly. Don't hold back. Raise your voice like a ram's horn. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. God is asking Isaiah to do something that none of us want to do. None of us want to sign up to go off and tell people where they have fallen short or where they have gone too far. There's this aspect of it that just is cringeworthy. Who are we to be the voice of the person that's going to say that? But as we look at Isaiah 58 verse 1, then we got to recognize this, that there is some good to it. There's good in that when somebody was to tell other people when they have done poorly or when they have done wrong. The assumptive reasoning behind that is that the person who is being told that they have transgressed or that they have sinned should develop from it. They should listen. They should mature in that. When they are told that they have done wrong, then they should do better the next time that they have an occasion to do such. So there's good in it. That's something that we need to kind of wrestle with. Or uh, Do y'all hear me say wrestle? Uh, we need to wrestle with that concept. We need to be challenged by the idea that there's good in being told when you do wrong. It also would necessitate the idea that if we are to reject that, if we are not to listen when we are done wrong, if we are not to expose ourselves to that kind of relationship where other people can challenge us, then there is bad in that. If God asks it, then it is a good thing in our situations and in our life. Also notice that God is talking to a specific person, Isaiah. Isaiah is the person that God wants him to cry loudly, to raise his voice, to tell his people that they have sinned, that they have transgressed. It's a specific person, not everybody. This is saying to us that maybe it's not your job to jump online and to tell everybody where they have messed up. Maybe it is not your calling in life to be the prophet of wisdom in our country toward people that you do not know and you do not have a relationship with. Isaiah is the prophet of God called to speak to these people at this time in a specific setting. We have similar responsibilities, positions. Um, uh, fathers are supposed to instruct their children. Mothers are supposed to instruct their children. Husbands and wives are supposed to encourage and instruct one another. Pastors are supposed to speak to churches. Small group leaders are supposed to facilitate this sort of thing. Small group members are supposed to speak into one another's lives in, in a similar way, letting the other person know that you have transgressed or you have sinned. So it's not everybody's responsibility to, to enact this sort of declaration upon anyone. It's specific people toward a specific group of people. You notice that he says, to my people and to the house of Jacob. These are specifically the people of God, the person of God in the position to speak that way to a specific people of God. That there is a relationship there. This is the job, speaking specifically, of pastors in churches. 
That when we speak to those on one-on-one conversations or when we stand before a congregation, we are tasked with the job of letting people know when they have transgressed or when they have sinned. Churches today tend to be very comfortable when preachers stand up and talk about how bad the world is and not very comfortable at all if they talk about what's going on in the church. Listen, it's not my job. It's not the job of preachers to stand up and let you know how bad they are. Instead, it is the job of a preacher, a person who is reading the Word of God, to show to us where we have messed up. I have found it to be much more successful and far more profitable to speak to the people in the room. The people who are not in the room, uh, they're not listening. They don't even hear, you know? And so we need to be uh, more careful in what it is that we expect preachers to do. And I feel like verse 1 is so challenging to us as Christians because we don't like this situation, but yet we have to agree to or at least hold to the concept that it is good and it is bad to reject it. A specific person speaking to a specific group about a specific problem. He says, tell them their transgressions or their sins. Transgressions means that you've gone too far, that there's a limit and you have exceeded it. That's what the specific word transgression means. It's like a speed limit. When you break the speed limit, you are not doing something you're not supposed to do. That is drive. You're allowed to drive under normal circumstances. It's not even that you're not allowed to drive fast. You can drive fast. It's just when you go too fast. When you drive in a manner that you are not allowed to, you have transgressed. Speed limits are transgressed. Sins are different. They mean that you have not yet met a standard. So speaking with, um, uh, sticking with the car theme, it's like when, when a vehicle doesn't pass an inspection. It doesn't meet a standard in order to be on the road. A speed limit is a transgression. A uh, inspection would be a sin. I know I'm in Arkansas and we don't have car inspections. I know that factually because I read the website. I also know that because I have seen cars on our highways. And so we don't have inspections here. That would be a sin. This would be a transgression. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is it's not everyone's job to stand up and tell everyone else what they're doing wrong. Furthermore, what's about to follow is not Isaiah on some random rant about things that he doesn't like. It's about specific transgression. It's about God's standard. So if you're going to speak into the life of somebody else, you need to make sure that you're speaking to a certain standard of character or integrity or of following God or of being Christ-like. That that's what's about to follow here. It's just that the shocking or the startling thing is that what Isaiah is about to say doesn't sound bad. It doesn't even sound like it's wrong. Look at verse 2. They seek me day after day and delight to know my ways like a nation that does what is right and does not abandon the justice of their God. They ask me for righteous judgments. They delight in the nearness of God. Verse 3, Why have we fasted, but you have not seen? This is the people talking. We have denied ourselves, but you haven't noticed. None of that sounds bad. All of that sounds good. In fact, at different times and different sermons, I may encourage you to do any number of these things. Seek God. Trust his righteousness. Don't leave him fast. Deny yourself. All of these things are good. But it brings up this complication that if God is telling him to stand up and say to the people, you have gone too far or you have not gone far enough, then what is brought to the front here is that there is some sort of transgression that's happening even though they look like they are doing what is right. Even though they look like they are doing what's right. It reminds me of uh, chapter 1. In chapter 1, we had the same concept, this hypocrisy of looking righteous, but denying God in your motivations. The first indication of this is what they say. It's clear from what they say that there is a disconnect between what I'm calling the methods and the motivation, the, the action and the reason behind it. He says, or they say, we have, uh, we have fasted, but you have not seen. We have denied ourselves, but you haven't noticed. That's what the people are saying to God. Why would they be saying that? They're speaking specifically of fasting, 
which is a biblical concept. It's what people do in the Old New Testament and even currently today. It's the concept of denying yourself, and, and people will deny themselves any number of things. They might go without food. They might go without some sort of pleasure. They might go without some sort of hobby or habit. They like not watching television or not eating lunch. They will deny themselves for two specific purposes biblically. The first one is that they would hear from God. They want God to speak directly, and so they're going to remove distractions. And in those hunger pains or, or whatever else, they're going to be driven towards asking God. Or they are showing remorse for a sin that they have committed, a transgression that they have committed. If that's why you would fast, then notice the way that they say, we have fasted, but you have not seen. In other words, there is an exposure of their motivations being self-centered. That they weren't fasting to hear from God. They were fasting to get God's attention. To get God to do something on their behalf. That's going to be specifically said in just a minute. But let's walk through the text in order. Probably, even though we don't know what it is, they were asking for something like a good crop, their enemies to be destroyed, more money in the treasury or uh, for a good rain, or maybe the rain to stop. These were the goals that they wanted. They were self-centered. This is to say that their worshiping of God, while it looked right, was all about them, all about what they could get out of it, and not about knowing and ascribing to God what was due His name. They weren't actually worshiping God. Listen to this. As you watch what they did there, seeking God and knowing His ways, a nation that knows what right, they weren't actually worshiping God. They weren't actually following God's will or listening to God speak. They were worshiping themselves. They were after their own preference, their own comfort, their own success, their own pleasures. This wasn't about their actual worship. What it speaks to is the disconnect between a method and a motivation. In other words, what it means is, and this is the same thing that was happening in chapter 1, it's the same thing that's happening right here. What it means is that you can do the right things in the wrong way and be wrong in the right things that you are doing. That your motivation behind your actions matters just as much as the particular actions in which you are taking. That's what is going on here with them. They did all of these right things, even fasted, and yet they were actually worshiping their own desires. God shows them as much. He does so by reminding them of what happens. Their actions on Sunday matter just as much as their actions on Monday. In other words, as we see a distinction between the way that we worship and the way that we live our lives, God sees no distinction. That your good worship can be negated by treating others poorly. Your good acts of worship can be negated if there is a self-interest there. Look at uh, verse 3. He says, uh, right there in the middle of it, look, this is God's word. I know they put the verse up there, and I know there's a lot more to it, but just pause on that word for a second. God answers when they say, you have not seen. God responds with, well, you look, you look. What is God wanting us to look at? He's wanting us to look at our own hearts. The word there is to show them what is hiding below, to take a look at their heart, to recognize what they are actually doing. The hardest thing for people to see is their own motivations of their own heart. We do what feels natural, what plays into our insecurities. We work to defend and to protect us, and that comes by reaction, without much thought. God wants them to stop and to think, to stop and look, at their own hearts. They say, we did this and you haven't seen. And God says, look, you do as you please. You're doing what pleases you. Obviously, the point of worship is not to do what pleases you. It's to do what pleases the Lord. To go after what pleases God. But they were doing what pleases them. They were doing what served their purposes and their heart, their expectations of how God would respond if they did certain actions. God's desires were not their desires. If your goals happen to be exactly what God is doing, if your desire happens to be exactly what God always and, all, and forever, you are following always what benefits you, then there's a possibility that you are not following God. Even though they looked like they were following God, God's ways, as in verse 2, they were actually following their own plan. 
That's what Isaiah is standing up here saying. You're doing all the good stuff, but your motivation is far from them. Look also that it says in verse 4, you fast with contention and strife. Strike viciously with your fist. You cannot fast as you do today, hoping to make your voice heard on high. Look, there's where God just lays it all out there. You can't do your worship. You can't fast like you're fasting today, hoping to hear, hoping that your voice would be heard. That's not the point of fasting. That's what God says. The point of fasting is to hear me, not for me to hear you. You notice that it says they have contention, strife, viciously. Here's the, the illusion is that they're fasting. They were denying themselves food and they got hangry. They got mad about it. And so they were vicious. They were mean. They were striking out toward other people. Their worship, as they put it, their following God's plan, their pursuit of God's will, their, um, all those things that he says in verse 2, their chasing after his righteousness day after day, all of that sort of stuff, was leading them to hurt other people. And this is God pointing at the obvious, saying, your methods look right, but your motivation is obviously wrong because you are hurting other people. The way you treat other people reveals the true nature of your relationship with God. That if your worship is causing you to mistreat or to use other people for your benefit, then you may not actually be worshiping God. You may be worshiping yourself. So God has a solution. Verse 6. He says, isn't this the fast that I choose? You're doing that fast, but this is the fast that I choose. To break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to tear off every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and the homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him, and not to ignore your own flesh and blood? God gives what I call eight to-dos. These eight things that he wants them to do. Now, here's what's important. The actual specifics of the eight things are not as uh, weighty as the meaning behind them. I'm not going to go through all eight of them, but just notice this, that they are the kind of things of like serving the poor and the powerless, helping those who cannot help themselves. Also notice that they are both spiritual and physical. It says breaking the chains of those who are caught in, in evil or those who are bound within wickedness. It's addiction, that these people are bound into addiction. They have a weight on them that they can't break free themselves. He also says things, that's the spiritual side of things. He also says things like they are naked and need clothing. They are hungry and need food. There is a spiritual and a physical aspect of this. Twice in these two verses and once in verse 9, he's going to mention the idea of breaking free the yoke. That, 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 that harness that goes over the oxes, they pull. It's a deep weight that you are supposed to go in and help those who can't help themselves. Go and help those who have a burden that they cannot carry on their own. That's what God is saying here. And he's saying, when you do these types of things, then I will know that there is a change of your heart. In other words, I will know that your motivations are as pure and right as your methods that what you're doing will line up with why you're doing it. How will he know that? How will he know that there is a change of motivations or a change of heart? Because when you help the homeless and the poor, the naked and the hungry, when you help the addicted, you can help them expecting nothing in return. You see, their worship had been rooted in if I do this, I expect God to do this for me. If I do this, I expect other people to pat me on the back, to help me, to push me along, to uplift me, to undergird me. The expectations were self-centered. But when you do this kind of stuff, you can expect them to help you none. You can expect nothing in return. Those who don't have enough to feed themselves and their families have nothing to give you for the food that you would provide for them. Those who are naked and cold and homeless and alone have nothing to exchange to help you or to give back to you. Those who are addicted and in bonds and chains of sin and wickedness, they can give you nothing that is worthy of the freedom that you could help them achieve. 
You see, God is saying this. Don't expect, help other people without expecting them to do for you. Help other people, then I will know. Then you will see that your worship aligns with what I want you to do, with the method there. Expect nothing in return. The specifics, like I said here, are not as important as the heart of a God fear. A God-focused heart is expected to do for those whom we can expect nothing in exchange. When all we do is worship God, expecting that we would give us something, that he would give us something, or that we would benefit, then we are not actually worshiping God. 8 through 10 contains these promises. Here's the irony. When you help other people, when you worship God expecting something in return, you get nothing. When you worship God expecting nothing, you get something. Here's what God says in 8 through 10. 8. Then your light will appear like a dawn and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. At that time when you call, the Lord will answer. When you cry out, he will say, here I am. If you get rid of the yoke among you, the finger pointing, the malicious speaking, and if you offer yourself to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted one, then your light will shine in the darkness and your night will be like noonday. Three promises from God. First is that your light will shine. Others will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, which is what Jesus said in Matthew, that there will be good that comes from this. In other words, God will use you in order to bring glory to himself for their good and God's glory. You will be healed. This isn't speaking of a physical illness. He says that you will recover in verse 8 and 9. It, it, it brings to mind the idea that when you call out in pain, God will answer. God will come and rescue you. The idea is that all throughout Scripture, the greatest affliction that we have, the virus that we all suffer from, is, a, is, a, is the virus of, of self-glorification. That we would live our lives leveraging everything that we have and every relationship we have and every skill we have for our own good and our own happiness and success and pleasure and comfort. And so when we live a life in self-denial, then we are being healed from that pain, from that sickness. He will use you, your light will shine, he will heal you, and he will protect you. It says that the Lord's glory will be your rear guard, that God himself will protect you as you worship other people, or as you worship him and you serve other people. That's quite, um, that's quite some promises to lean on. To put it simply, here's the point of today's message. If you do what is expected, expecting nothing in return, then you can expect God to do much more than you ever expected. If you do what is expected of you, expecting nothing in return, you can expect God to do much more than you ever expected. This whole idea of self-denial is written all the way through our relationship with God. That it is when you finally come to Jesus, laying down your crown, your own plans, your own goals, your own motivations, accepting him as your Lord and your Savior, when you deny yourself in that way, that's when he saves you. That's when you are adopted and freed and part of the family. Luke 9, 23, then he said to all of them, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Galatians 2, 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians 5.15 And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. If you will deny yourself, it is the beginning of that relationship. Look, this confronts on all sorts of levels this idea of fairness. We live our whole lives wired from the very beginning that we are going to get our own, that we are going to do what is good for me to make sure that it is always fair and it is always equitable. But what Scripture teaches us is that you weren't created to live your life for your own good, that we were made to leverage everything about us 
toward the good of other people. When God creates Adam, he gives him a job, a task to steward, to love, to, to manage that which was there. Others, other things. In this case, it was the animals, but you get the point. When he looks at Adam and says, it's not good for man to be alone, so he creates Eve. We often think of that just in the relationship of a husband and a wife, but the reality is there's nothing that locks it into that. He's just saying that people were created for the good of others and the glory of God. He for her and and she for him. That we were created for the good of other people and the glory of God. It strikes against all the self-wired motivations that we often have. Last Sunday night, I was, I was extremely disappointed. Uh, we had a church conference, and uh, we, we, we did a number of things here. We, we voted and stuff, and I was, I was disappointed. I wasn't disappointed in the vote. We voted, and that was cool. I wasn't disappointed in the people um, there were a lot of people here, and there was a great spirit and, and activity. I wasn't disappointed in the testimonies. That was fun to hear that. I certainly was not disappointed in the celebration book, which we have more of those at the guest center if you, if you haven't gotten one of those. That was really exciting. What I was disappointed in was the reality that we didn't get to have the chili cook-off, all right? I love the chili cook-off. I look forward to the chili cook-off every year. The chili cook-off— Um, probably more than anything apart from the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ brings us together, old and young, men and women, everybody, equal playing field, competing together. It's also when I enjoy uh, once a year venison chili, all right? And so I love uh, the chili cook-off, and yet we weren't able to do that. And so I was disappointed, but I don't—I think my own disappointment was far surpassed by that of my, my youngest son. He showed up here that night, and, um, and the story, I've, I've heard the story in a number of different ways, but essentially he walked up to one of our staff and looks at him and says, man, I'm just here for the chili um, that night. And, and, the, uh, and the staff person looks at him and is like, um, well, you're going to need to go ask your dad about that, you know. And so we broke it to him. There's no chili tonight. And uh, he's like, well, then, then what are we doing here? You know, it's like, like, if we're not, if we're not chili, why am I even here, you know? And, I mean, I relate to that on some level, but the clear distinction is there was night and day. There was a world of difference between uh, myself and Amos. You know why? Because my expectations were clearly set walking into this. I knew that we weren't going to have chili. I canceled it. I had to cancel it because of COVID ruins everything. I had to cancel that. But he didn't know that. He walked in here expecting everything. I just— I just really think that there are times, and maybe today's the day for you, in which we need to clearly adjust our expectations. Because, like I've already said, when you do what you're expected to do, expecting nothing in return, then you can expect God to do amazing things far past anything that you had ever expected. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.